Hey everybody, uh, this is a bit of a different episode for Bounty Board, so rather than having our general, our usual group of four guys hanging out talking about games, Ben, Sketch Sawyer, and I um, had the opportunity to talk to the treasurer from Game Workers Unite over in the UK, uh, a gentleman named Kevin Aguaze, and uh, we were able to talk to him about unionization in more detail than we were able to in the podcast we did about it just a few weeks ago. Obviously, him being involved means that he had a lot more experience and a lot more a lot more answers to give us based on the questions that we had and some of the uh, questions that we were kind of winging the answers for in our episode. So we're not going to have a regular episode this week. It's going to be this. Um, it's still a little more than an hour long, so you're still going to get plenty to listen to and this conversation is very good kevin is a very intelligent and very learned um individual in the gaming industry he's worked for ubisoft and several other companies and he had a lot of insight to be able to share with us in this episode so without further ado without delaying any longer uh enjoy this episode with myself and benjamin and kevin and we will see you guys next week Oh, and I know I said without further ado, but real quick before you get started, please bear with us. There are a few moments in here where we have some audio issues and some stuff gets cut off. Um, Kevin's over in the UK and that made staying connected a little bit difficult in the beginning and a little bit difficult in the middle. Um, But we ironed it out and most of the stuff that we talked about that we missed in the fallout, we we re-recorded. So um, yeah, that's it. Now enjoy the episode more solidarity is essentially always better in labor union and labor organizing like if the directors of hollywood movies were in the same union as everybody else working on a hollywood movie you just get way more leverage however um i think hollywood came up with a system that works both for workers and companies so i'm not like trying to bash that down but like if you want sure. to create in games isn't one where they're like first-class workers who are unionized, which are then like senior programmers or whatever. And then there's a second class of worker who's probably a contractor, QA or committee manager, who's outside of the union and just is stuck in the same old um, bad conditions. Sure. Now, so like, if it was all one... If everybody that was working in one game studio was in one union, would it like... Would the union specify different like privileges for job title or would that would the union not even worry about that just be there to it just exist to like enforce um what am i trying to say i lost my track of thought like if they're all in the same union is it just then there to exist to like protect the workers rights as opposed to like differentiating between their roles specifically um, more or less, like the idea is more that because everybody in the studio is at the same in the same union, the people at that studio can figure out what they want to do. Like, if it is a smaller indie studio, um, where people like switch roles a lot or like have multiple hats that they wear, then like they probably don't want that distinction, and then the union doesn't push for it because at the union is the workers at that place at a company. If they do want that distinction, then they can set it up however they they feel is good for them. Sure. 
<clears throat> that makes sense. That was one of the things, I don't know if I brought it up on the podcast or if it was a conversation later, but we were talking about how it would probably end up that just like every studio had a different setup because they would build it the way it works for them. Um, how difficult do you think that process would be to get started? Like, that's that's, I guess, the biggest question everyone's asking, right? Is trying to figure out the logistics of doing this across the board um but if it's localized and just within studios do you think that it's something that can be done quickly or does it take time i mean it does definitely take some time like um to give perspective on this right i'm in the uk we have well i co-founded a union for game developers in the uk not in a particular company but nationwide um what would then be per company is a particular collective bargaining agreement that sets out a particular set of rules for a company. Sure. So no matter if you're a freelancer or what company you work at, you can be in the union. However, the conditions that the union enforces in a, in a collective bargaining agreement then might differ from company to company, um, which is how it works in the UK with the Game Developers Union, which is how it works in France with the Game Developers Union, which is how it works in Finland with the Game Developers Union. Uh, um, actually, they're working on a on an industry-wide collective bargaining agreement. Like, if you compare to uh, you can compare to the the uh, SEC-EFTRA agreement with the American video games industry, which sure. more or less bundles a whole bunch of companies and publishers into one big bundle that all have the same conditions. The Finnish uh, Game Workers Union is doing on a process of creating something similar that takes like the biggest uh employers of finland and sets them all out in a in a similar set of conditions um whereas if you look at like south korea and nexon where um the uh people at nexon are currently pushing for uh, essentially contract negotiation um buying agreements um those are only the people of nexon there isn't a industry-wide South Korean Game Developers Union. This is specifically for people at Nexon there. Interesting. Um, and I know of a couple of other places in Europe where a specific company might have a union. Um, I think it's important to keep in mind a bit here that um, I have a bit of more of a like, global perspective on that. And there's a whole bunch of countries where a whole bunch of people working games are part of a union. Um, yeah, that's super interesting. Like, I actually didn't realize that. I didn't realize, yeah, well, you yeah. were like listing countries a moment ago. I didn't realize so many places had, if not like started doing it, like already have it established in, in ways that they're trying to like, like you said with Finland, trying to like set it up for the entire industry. Um, do you see like any issues that are occurring in other countries that aren't occurring in the countries that have already done this? Or is it just like they haven't tried yet? Uh, I definitely know of other countries that are trying. Uh, like once you go into, because the union usually operates like in in the confinements of like a nation state slash a legal system. You know, differs from place to place. Sure. What you might want to go for. Um, uh, but I mean, game design is sort of an organization as a whole of people pushing to set something like that up across the board. Um, across the a whole bunch of different countries and yeah. some are easier to do some are harder to do depending on 
like the US definitely wants places that it's harder to do. Yeah, sure. Uh, compared to some others, maybe. Yeah. Now I know in the in the states, uh, unions across different industries have sort of a well, for some people have a stigma. Um, is do you feel any just organic natural pushback against unions when it comes to the game industry? Do people fight it? Uh, like because, because it's called they, a union? Yeah, because it's a union or because they disapprove of unions in other industries? Do you see any pushback like that? Yes and no. I think, I think the U.S. is stronger in general in like specific anti-union sentiments. Yeah, um, okay. However, like speaking like across Europe, um, at least Western Europe and Northern Europe, it's more that sort of unions did a lot of things in like the, I don't know, 30s to 60s. And then from there on, um, uh, as all these games are made, as like laws and policies changed, um, they sort of went out of style. Like young people joining the workforce didn't really like consider them. Yeah. Um, so it's less that there's a strong like anti-union sentiment. It's more like if you talk to a fresh games graduate, they're going to be like, yeah, I know what a union is or does. Right. <laughs> sure. Which I, I prefer because like, then, you know, I can go big because unions also change, right? Like, we're not in the days, well, actually, Sally, we are in the days we need to fight for a 40 hour work week. But we don't <laughs> need to fight for the end of, like, child slavery in sure. the workforce anymore. Sure. So definitely, that's, that's behind us. We don't <laughs> need to fight for the right um, of black people to be in a union anymore. So, so, so unions can move on to also, like, fight for issues of diversity and inclusivity, gender mm. pay gap, all of those issues um, or tackle the gig economy, like delivery drivers, Uber drivers, all of those kinds of new um, yeah, sure. issues. Not every union does. Like There are definitely bad unions out there. I'm not going to defend any police union in the US. <laughs> sure. I'll go die. Um, <laughs> but um, there's there are some unions that you know, they made these gains back back in, like, 40 years ago. But since then, they sort of only really dealt with pay and vacation, which are important topics, but they didn't really expand what they were trying to do. Whereas if you look at how a whole bunch of, like, digital writing um, unionized with um, the writers of America East, like Vice, Vox, Gizmodo, yeah, which sure. we talked about, that in, in their collective buying agreements, they talk about, hey, Trans employees should have a higher grade of, of healthcare because they need it. There should be a set code of conduct. Like you shouldn't use preferred pronouns. Like of those issues that are also part of the workplace, whether it's sexism, racism, misogyny, of those issues are not also being tackled, tackled by like the modern modern side of union. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't think about the idea that like uh, young people coming into the industry <laughs> would not have many preconceived notions as to what unions can be, and so they can like influence them to address these kinds of things. I didn't think about that, um, but I remember following like when uh, Vice and Gizmodo unionized and Kotaku like writers were talking about the process, and like that seemed really exciting. And I, it was it's strange to me like now to hear so many people push back against unions when like that's the the possibility they hold like the ability to to tailor your workplace to have concessions for things like this yeah um, that's nice i think a lot of people uh 
you know, the echo chamber thing where mom and dad hates unions, so I will too kind of thing. Sure. You know, and it, it, we're, we're sort of in a more rural part of the United States and, uh, you know, we, we're in a big city, but still, um, there are, there's anti-union bumper stickers everywhere. <laughs> it's like a very real thing here in the States. So, um, so yeah, to us, it's, to some, it's a dirty word. So we've, we've got, we've got to kind of fight that. So one of the biggest questions I get, Kevin, and I don't know if you experience this across the board, but one of the biggest like put uh, stances that people push back from is that like unions cost the companies that that have to deal with them significantly more money than um, just regular hired salaried paid workers. Is that like? Is that actually an issue that you're dealing with across the board, or is this idea of unionization not directly tied to just large amounts of like spending? Uh, I think there are multiple things there. Um, like, first of all, I had a whole bunch of cases where people are forced to do unpaid overtime, who's actually costing so many money as the company is not paying the workers second of all if you look at a game like fortnite which god damn it that game is swimming in cash tim sweeney has a net worth of 7.2 billion us dollars and yeah for all the centrists out there i know that he doesn't literally have a stack of cash sure 7.2 billion dollars on his mattress <laughs> how much of that is tied up in, in stocks and shit like i know still though they're hiring a whole bunch of QA people on minimum wage in the place where where because that don't even have enough desk for them to soup so two people have to share a single desk mm. and I'm like How, Fortnite why? An, yeah. yeah Fortnite has a, I mean I understand that they didn't expect Fortnite to be as big as it is I think nobody did still though at some point it's like hey sure paying your workers more literally costs more money that is true like that's that's how the math works out there <laughs> sure however um there's some various studies that show that of course happier and workers are more productive less overworked people are more productive like the whole basic assumption that if i force somebody to work 100 hours he will be more productive than if he were to work 40 doesn't really hold up especially not in creative industries um creative industries where if you work four years on a game it's not like every day every single thing you do will get the game one percent point closer to completion there's a lot of like exploration creative like processes going on that sure if you're just fucking tired it's not like you're gonna come up with like you will produce more errors and bugs there will be less work. Like if you look at all the studies that go into four-day work weeks and how a four-day work week leads to more productive employees, even though they work a day less. And uh, I love seeing stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, the base assumption that both paying people more will result in a net loss, and that working people more will result in a net gain, are very questionable. Sure. And I'm not saying that it, that you know. Short periods of, of, of like crunch can definitely increase production. But I think it's a problem of like people looking at like, oh yeah, here I see a hard number go up, which is the amount of like money I pay my employees. Um, but then the actual gains that you get from that are less 
like immediate in your balance sheet, right? Sure, yeah. Well, yeah, I think we saw that pretty plainly with um, like Bioware's last two releases. Like Mass Effect Andromeda and Anthem both were games that, I mean, after they were released, we found out were crammed together in like 18 months rather than the full four years, and people were working like 100-hour work weeks and leaving because they were on like medical leave for stress and anxiety. Yeah. And then the games that we got weren't great at all. <laughs> and yeah. like, if, if you were going to push people to that extent because the numbers said, well, that much work will get it done. Clearly, the quality of what came out was not resemblant of the, the, the work that you so, you know, like logged in hours. Yeah, for sure. People crunch on good games. People crunch on bad games. People crunch on games that get canceled. That's not as it as like a death march when somebody's saying you to work overtime on a game that has already been cancelled, yet you know you owe your publisher a milestone or something. Right. Um, but also, like I think there was a who did it? There was a company society that like analyzed um, overtime and crunch to Metacritic scores, and it showed that games that crunched more didn't actually have high Metacritic scores, which isn't the say-all, be-all of the quality of a game, of course. No, but, sure, uh, but that is an interesting statistic. An interesting talking point, if nothing else. <laughs> yes. And, of course, if you think of Anthem, it, de- it probably, I mean, I don't know this firsthand, but it probably definitely were people who crunched on Anthem in the period before the, like, 18 months rush to get it done. And if you, look, if you read all of these Anthem stories, they talk about how did all this work. That was thrown away, and they did all this work, and it was thrown away, and they couldn't figure it out. Yeah, and people would like leave that had solved the frostbite engine and like hacked it, and then like when they left, they didn't tell the people that were going to be there afterwards how to do it, so they had to relearn how to do it. It's yeah, it's a nightmare. (laughs) That whole story is a nightmare. Um, so what like what uh specific projects are you guys working on now that you're like super excited about? Just to kind of turn the conversation towards like what um, Game Workers Unite's working on. So um, in the in the UK specifically, like where we are, legal trade union, what we're working on very strongly is to like create um, regional groups. So because a whole bunch of us are like, we want to capital about London, where there's also a bunch of games companies there, but like it's very important to us that like there's there's games companies scattered across all of the UK. Uh, whether it's Scotland or Northern Ireland or Wales, like making sure that people um, in those areas also have representation within the union. Um, like the like, we want the union to be very shit. That is a German term. Uh, it's not base democratic. That's a shitty German translation to English. It's um, goddamn it. Like <laughs> that, most decisions are made democratically by the whole union membership, right? That is yeah. not. There's a union leadership somewhere that does whatever with your money, um, which I think a whole bunch of anti-union sentiment is like, oh, we're just taking your money to get rich or something. I can tell you right now, I don't get a salary. I'm doing this work for free, sadly, on a union. Um, wow. Like, uh, yeah. Like, we're lit- we, like um, also, as a treasurer, I can tell you that every like, year at the NGA meeting, at the annual general meeting, I just lay out all of our spending and you'll see it mostly goes into like holding meetings and paying for train tickets to go to a meeting somewhere. Sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you're like putting it right back into operational costs. Yeah. 
and lawyer because there's a bunch of that like sure. we work with a whole bunch of like pro bono lawyers and barristers but still you know there's a cost of doing casework um representation um like sadly there's a whole bunch of like stuff right you can't talk publicly about sure. but like what we do a lot or we see a lot is uh what was sort of surprising to me is that when we first started representing people like people had poems in a workplace they came to us uh but like look at it like damn it this is like 100 definitely illegal what the company is doing right here wow. and we talk to people at the company are like oh yeah they've been doing this for years why have they been doing this for years because nobody ever pushed back people just took it like if they get illegally dismissed they look for a new job they don't try to get back at that like uh like we very quickly learned that for a whole bunch of stuff you just you just have a lawyer literally send a letter to a company and be like oh shit somebody's pushing back god damn it all of these years you could have we could just do what we want because nobody is questioning us and that, but now somebody's actually pushing back wow. so all of your problems actually like of course we take some stuff to court or to um an employment tribunal which is which is similar to like taking something to the uh national to the nlb the national labor relationship board in the u.s right. um we take a whole bunch of stuff to there but all of that also a whole bunch of that also gets settled out of court um but but yeah a whole bunch of like i realized more and more that sadly a whole bunch of managers and like producers in the game industry like a they only ever worked in games b they didn't start out, start out really as a producer then we started out as a, like a normal game designer then it became a lead, and now they're managing people. You know, they don't really know how to do that well, right? Sure. They just sort of matured into a leadership position because classically, that's how you go. You go junior, regular, senior, and then you become a lead of a team because you've been in the industry long enough. But not because you actually know how to lead people. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess thought that's about that with a like... byproduct of video games still. Uh, I hate the word maturing because it seems to people like to say that the industry's in its adolescence things like that it's kind of a a repeated phrase but i guess that's part of it though right like the industry's still sort of figuring out what it means to be an industry kind of thing or do you think we're, we're past mm-hmm. that i think so i don't I like people say the industry is very young i disagree we've been around yeah. for 40 50 years right, <laughs> right, right. we did have exactly. time to figure it out right. what actually is going on is that people to a huge degree are leaving the industry and they don't stick around for long and mm. the, the mm, there's a particular type of person who like manages to stick around a lot and do well and they're probably not a person of color and they're probably not a woman and they're probably not queer if you, if you get what i'm saying sure yeah, yeah, uh, sure so you get like one cast of people that sticks around in leadership and nothing really changes yeah and also a, a, a long time people are perpetuating the people that sticked around and sort of survived the harsh conditions they were like oh yeah that's how you do it fucking hell crunch is great staying up with my body <laughs> eating pizza sleeping under the desk sipping on that mountain dew yeah that's right. how you do it yeah the old, the old school like doom method right that's probably how they made wolfenstein and stuff like that <laughs> yeah it's, it's all romanticized yeah. as like this is the way it is here yeah yeah or even if they're like, maybe this is wrong. Yet still, that's how I... Like, I survived doing it, so you should too. If I ever came to style, then you need to as well. Um, although, I think that what's actually changing is that 
I mean, to give you some context, I think the average like tenure in the games industry is somewhere between six to eight years, depending on who you ask. After six to eight years, half of the people leave the industry completely. Wow. Um, yes, incredible that's a brain statistic. Dead. That's, not even, that's not even talking about companies constantly letting people go and then just needing to hire new people that don't get the technologies, like you see at Anthem. Uh huh. Um, <laughs> on top yeah. of that, yeah, people leave the industry completely. But I think nowadays we've reached a point where there are enough enough older developers that hey maybe i do want to buy a house maybe i do want to start a family maybe i don't want to change jobs every two years is that a nice statistic for you i think my memory is fuzzy on this but in the last five years the average game developer switched jobs twice Hmm. Um, and it's not uncommon for the job change to also include like a location change um, or even a country change and I think there are now enough people who've reached, stuck long enough, around long enough in the industry to get to a senior enough point and to be sort of uh, old enough in a good way that they're like, hey, I want to settle down. I, I can't do this unsecure, shitty, like just unpredictable stuff anymore. I need some stressful, stuff. unhealthy, right? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah, no, I think that, like, the, the idea... I remember seeing, like, Neil Druckmann at Naughty Dog started on with Naughty Dog when they were doing, like, Crash Bandicoot. And he's been around for a really long time, and then, like, now he's the, like, studio lead for Naughty Dog. And I remember when that happened, having the thought, just to bounce back to one of the things you said earlier, like, I wonder, like, what kind of training he got from being the narrative designer uh and then lead narrative designer to like studio head like that's a huge role change um and so it's interesting to hear like the like you hear you say like a lot of these people like just kind of were around long enough that they got there uh and that's something that the industry is starting to address because i think that's very good yeah i mean I'd say that John Carmack did some pretty cool work on Doom. Yeah, now he's leading. Now he's leading. It's not leading itself necessarily, but now he's a company leader. Mm-hmm. And how much of your elite programming skills actually translate into company leadership skills? Oh, we've all seen that guy on stage. We know he's not good with people. <laughs> There's right. no way. Not going into like antisocial programmer stereotypes too much, but like. Um, yeah, I hear you. Yes, just, it's just it doesn't doesn't necessarily mean he's qualified. Um, yeah, so that that makes you look uh, sort of like what you just said, and companies like Bioware, like you see them develop gold and then they, they deteriorate over time, and my brain can't help but think automatically that they're promoting the wrong people <laughs> to lead these studios. And then things sort of fall apart over time. Maybe or they're or they're causing just a monumental amount of churn, so that like yeah. they'll yeah. release a game, and by the time the next game comes out, you've got a team that's only fifty percent carryover, and it's hard to create consistent magic with when you have to <laughs> redraft your team every three years. You know what I mean? Like that's well, how many other industries also have? A product development cycle that's that long. I mean, you could develop an app for a few years, or you know, a company like Uber or whatever takes a long time to metastasize. But 
you know, like movies get made in a year, sometimes six months. So how many similarities do we have to where a creative product takes this long to even get into the consumer's hands? That's such a strange product uh, production cycle. Well, it's also, a long time to float on a lot of people and a lot of money. I also think that five years is is kind of the extended uh, yeah. that like large, large companies can do, but not most of them do. Like you look at sports games, those come out every single year. Right. Um, without failure. Yeah. And Call of Honest, Duty. Honestly, and... from what I know of certain sports games, uh, without naming any names, some of those sports games, I, like they don't, they come out every year, but they don't have a development cycle of one year. They have right. a development cycle of three months to six months. Because <laughs> for some of those, that's all it takes. Yeah, sure. sure. And also, yeah. I think, like, the games are so weird <laughs> in that they have very few. And this is both good and bad, but there are very few, like, auteur types. Like, there are some. Like, we talk about Shigeru Miyamoto games. We talk about Hideo Kojima games. Yep. We talk about, like, Swery games. But, like, every movie is, like, attributed to a director. And people know that if the same... It's the same brand, the same franchise, the same movie series. But this Star Wars movie is a different director, so they expect something different. Yet right. with games, that's not at all the case. Every game that EA makes is an EA game. No matter who the actual company or people are that make the game. Sure. If you look at Watch Dogs 3, Watch Dogs 3 is made by a more or less completely different team than the team that made Watch Dogs 1 and 2. But it's still Ubisoft's Watch Dogs game. So people don't really... People that play games don't really like look at that. But sure. like, Caleb and I are actually trying to change that with Nerdy Bits. We put you know, Auteur in our tagline, and we commonly track... People who write the stories, direct them. We talk about them. We give them airtime. You know, so yeah. we're we're constantly trying to change that narrative that there are there are um, creators in the industry that you need to focus on more than just trusting a studio. Like you don't go to a, a movie because it's Paramount. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's actually right. funny you bring up like this specifically because Ben and I have talked about it a bunch recently. But like EA started as a company with the idea that they wanted to create um, an, a, an environment in the industry where, like, game developers were, like, rock stars. And then, like, over time, EA got so big that they brought in, like, business people that changed the way that the environment was in the dev pits when they were doing stuff. And, like, people describe that as EA losing its soul. Mm. And, like, I think that that does lend to this this issue we're going through right now is because people just, like you said, see the publisher and don't follow the team where, like, more Ubisoft, like, Ashraf Ishmael has been... uh, He did Assassin's Creed Black Flag and then he did Origins and, like, I've been following him since Black Flag because, like, yo, I want to be... I want to be there for his next project. And, like you said, that's just not a thing that exists in the industry. And I wonder if that's... Poss- hmm. If that's coming, you know what I mean. Like, I guess because Blood, Sweat, and Pixels covered that too, right? Yeah, it did. Yeah, I hope it does because it means that if you do try to do a yearly cyclic layoff, it gets harder. Because suddenly people are like, "Hey, hey, hey, wait a second! You're laying off the good people who make Game X I like, and I don't like that." Yeah, sure. Because right now, like in EA can lay off, just in EA can just oh god, it's gonna pun eviscerate visceral and nobody <laughs> would care if they just open up a new studio of completely different people and not a part of the world and call it 
Visible the second. Because it's yeah. an NEA game. Sure. Yeah, and that was heartbreaking for a lot of people because Visceral told really good stories and EA's had a problem with stories, but for some reason they thought it was okay to just shut down their best storytelling branch and kill a game that I think people are still <laughs> upset about. Was that thirteen thirteen? Thirteen thirteen was right. was under their purview, I guess. And then yeah, Visceral just got canned. And Dead Space, like Dead Space was a game people loved. We won't get another one of those. It's like if EA named themselves now, it would not be Electronic Arts. <laughs> it would be something else. <laughs> Taking yeah. the A out of EA. Yeah, but it's sort of also like slightly important to keep in mind because even if talking about like recognizing the teams, like game development, they're all more like AAA game development is now so global. There are so many studios involved in every single game. Mm-hmm. Like, of course, it's going to be main studio with a main creative director, game director, and leads and stuff, but... Um, like, I, in my day job, I work uh, at sort of an outsourcing company or code of company. And, um, like, I, work, I, like, worked on For Honor, um, for example, which, like, everybody thinks is an Ubisoft game, yet so much art is made in China, in Chengdu specifically. Um, all of the UI and PC controls are made in Germany by Blue Byte. Um, my company made a complete game mode, the arcade mode for Fauna, um, which is like <clears throat> they pitched us as like the single player, it's multiplayer, there's arcade mode. We made it complete thing. Um, hmm. And the Fauna team actually does talk about like us a lot in that context, yet um, a whole bunch of the time. Like you have entire parts, like maybe the multiplayer part of a game was made by a completely different studio that. Specialize in making multiplayer part like multiplayer games, um, sure. But people don't track that because they like look at just the main studio. Whereas you know, if you if you look at the credits of an Ubisoft game, you see a lot of studios. Oh man, so many studios! I remember someone. I think Waypoint was talking the other day about uh, Assassin's Creed Rogue. It was made by like Ubisoft Annecy, Ubisoft Singapore, Ubisoft like seven Ubisoft studios, and then like three or four other studios. Um, that they contracted, uh, and like, I work at GameStop when I'm not doing doing this, and like, the most, the most recent Call of Duty that came out, right, Black Ops Four, was made by Treyarch, and they canceled their the next game that Sledgehammer was gonna make because they want Sledgehammer and the other team that works with them to Infinity do the story. Ward. Yeah, oh, no, sorry. No, Sledgehammer, Infinity Ward, Treyarch, and... There's an even, like, fourth team that does, like, works with Treyarch on something. Yeah, yeah. The, that fourth team and Sledgehammer were working on a game together, and they canceled that game and made, like, their... Essentially, they're moving into the <clears throat> next game with Treyarch so that Treyarch can focus on multiplayer, and these two studios can do the story because Treyarch left story off of Black Ops 4. And, like, trying to have that conversation with layman gamers that come in and like didn't know that like nobody knows that and so i'll bring it up and they're like what and then it turns into like a 10 or 15 minute conversation and i don't know if i'm actually having any impact but i try to like clue people into stuff like that because there's a lot of parts of the industry that people don't really understand and i think a lot of the pushback even specifically in unionization is coming from this not not malicious 
ignorance, but just like it's it's unknown and people don't know. And I think the best way to help these things along and make these changes is just to kind of inform people. That yeah, seems really super, obvious, but like yeah. it's super true. Like people have a vague idea of how movies made, how a pop song is made, how a painting is like made. Nobody's a fucking clue how a game gets created. <laughs> it just sort of appears. It just sort of materializes out of corporate greed. <laughs> yeah, it does. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, and, that, and that's it's interesting. That they, that's very true. Like, almost nobody understands how it... Like, you can watch arguments on the internet, on Twitter, about, like, what a game engine is. <laughs> and that stuff is... Oh, boy. Don't even get me. It's so depressing. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna... What, like, hmm. okay. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Like, <laughs> like what, what? Like, Ubisoft has three game engines. Who, like, what do you think is the percentage of players who could, like, tell you which Ubisoft game is made in which Ubisoft engine? I, I have no idea. I only know A that, very like... very small percentage of people. I only know that The Division is made in Snowdrop, and I don't even think that's Ubisoft's engine. I think that's Massive's engine. So, yeah, it's Massive's engine, but Massive got bought, so then I don't know we saw studio. Okay. Are we okay. going to talk about acquisitions? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oof. That's another big thing. Shim. I don't know. I don't know if you want to talk about my five-minute five quick overview of what engines actually are in the industry. Oh, please do. What. Please do. I think that would be okay. fantastic. Do it. Do it. Okay. I'm going to keep it to myself because I work with them. Um, so they have a main engine called Scimitar. Scimitar was made for um, Prince of Persia and Assassin's Creed 1. And then from then on, most games use one version of, like, Scimitar slash Anvil. Um, so uh, everything from a Just Dance to a Tom Clancy's Wildlands to an Assassin's Creed to a Rainbow Six Siege to, God, more Ubisoft titles. Uh, <laughs> they mentioned Just Dance. All of those, same engine. Oh. Um, however, at some point... Ubisoft acquired the rights to Far Cry from Crytek. With the rights to Far Cry, they also got Crytek's engine, the Cry engine. And they renamed the engine to Dunia. And all the Far Cry's, Far Cry 3, Far Cry Blood Dragon, Far Cry 4, Far Cry... F Beats me what the fourth DLC was called, 5. They are all made <laughs> in a modified version of the Cry engine called Dunia, and then later Dunia 2, once they made it not shit. So Dunia is Crytek. Dunia is based on the Cry engine. That's it was good. made... By Crytek. Similarly, Amazon bought the Cry engine as well, and they renamed it Lumberyard. Lumberyard, yeah. To make all of Amazon's games into. So yes, both Ubisoft and Amazon use a modified Cry engine. Similarly, Massive made their own engine called Snowdrop. Ubisoft bought Massive, they got Snowdrop. Which, um, that's that's sort of engine flow. So if you like, go back. Like you figure out that like actually like the specific version of Scimitar that Fauna uses or something is like based on Africa War, but it's like based on Just Dance or something. Like people overestimate like graphical style, like art style, with engine. Like sure. You can make whatever art style and whatever engine. It doesn't really matter. Um, well, look at the like Epic, um, the uh, Unreal Engine. Like Fortnite is an Unreal and PUBG is an Unreal, and those games are wildly artistically different yeah. and when those lawsuits popped up i remember people being like what they're not even what like they didn't understand that the engine can do multiple things 
Yeah, the saddest thing is Unity because, you know, only the free version of Unity has the Unity logo. So people associate Unity with people using the free version of it. Oh, rather sure. than all of Unity games that just don't have oh. the Unity logo. Yeah, interesting. Inter yeah, I didn't think about that. Core point is that the, the interesting thing with engine convergence, because there are sort of less and less proprietary engines. I mean, all of the big publishers have their own one, but even like EA, right? EA made the decision to consolidate into Frostbite, no matter what. Get rid of all the other stuff, we're all Frostbite now, baby. Yeah, which was an awful death. decision. <laughs> it's an awful decision, but the, the, the idea behind this is that now if you're constantly laying, if you have a huge tech turnover, you're constantly in getting new people, you just have one engine, it gets easier to like move people around or like sure. get people back that know what you're doing. Um, so if every, like, you see it a lot with indie games, it's very easy for, well, not very easy, but it's way, way more possible for indie people to just collaborate with random other indie people because they all use, all of them use Unity or Unreal. Just like if two people want to make a movie together, they all, like, they sort of both know how to work a camera. It's not like every movie develops their own camera that works differently than any other camera on the market. <laughs> which, is not, which isn't 100% true. Some people are crazy enough to do that. But most of the time, right, you can take, you can get a Dolby group that just knows how to use a Dolby camera to make a movie. Out somebody saying, oh no, we've developed our own camera and it's different. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, James, James Cameron might be the only person that's ever done that. <laughs> Who's like, I'm going to wait to make a movie until I can make the technology specific to yeah, make a movie. Yeah, that's my short overview of, like, what engines actually are. And no, that's awesome. should get over there. They're just like Freenity. It's a good engine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a little pedantic, and it's a little uh, <laughs> maybe misled, right? Not everybody knows what they're talking about. So oh, maybe, man, they shouldn't, look, maybe they shouldn't argue about that. Net Netcode is my other favorite one. I'm like, what are you talking <laughs> No? Yeah. 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 Like, you know how much, when people say Netcode, but actually, what it actually, like, point at is, uh, I'm going to go big capitalism, because you know if, how fucking expensive it is to run good servers with a high tick rate and have lots of them available? Just costs a shit ton of money. Right. Yeah. Like, it's like the people only money, right? <laughs> Yeah, people will notice it a bit with like uh, Black Ops 4's, you know, uh, God, what was the Battle Royale mode? Uh, where they decreased yeah. the tick rate. Like, they didn't change any code, they just said it's cheaper if the servers don't do as much work as they do right now. Hmm. Yeah. I, I always like try to butt back when people say that, like, yeah, who knows this shit? Yeah, nobody. <laughs> Yeah, when a game launches and its servers are not great, it's always tough to be like, okay, but like, you understand how difficult it is to stock up and pay for as many. Like, that whole thing is super expensive and no one understands it. Yeah, we're, uh, I heard you guys talking about at will and like right to work states. And Missouri, where we are um, in St. Louis, is a um, at will state and like, I've worked with a couple game studios and like the at will like opportunity that they're given to just like let people go without having to give you a reason uh, is bad. It's bad. It's, re it's real bad. And it, I don't know why more people don't like stand up to it, but like, yeah, yeah it's just, it's just kind of the way things are. 
um, then like like unfit dismissals in the UK so like illegal dismissals also like one of our biggest like things we pull out of effort in because it just happens a whole bunch like even with legal protections you know sure if the economy says we're just not gonna pay you from now on like going illegal out just takes some time and especially if you're like your healthcare or uh, you know whatever else is bound up in your job like even though we are technically legally protected that can be pretty bad yeah um, even, st- even if like they legally can't just fire you like if they just decide not to pay you and they need to take a legal route that that's you're still like fucked for an in-between period yeah sure. yeah uh, that just happened with game informer they just laid off like most of their editors uh and their health insurance ended that friday yeah, like it didn't even with- cover them to the end of the month yeah, same with Ktel. They're just like, yep, no money for you. I mean, all of us managers are gonna pull out nice and like easy, but you know, you guys Pro- are... probably with bonuses too. Yeah, although if you look at like Activision Blizzard King, which oh yeah, uh, I guess this is going out to like people who play games like Activision and Blizzard and King, the company who makes Candy Crush, are all the same company. FYI, like they're yeah. the same exact corporation. They did try to have a whole bunch of people, which they did anywhere in the world, except for France, because what happens in France is that it is just straight up illegal to lay people off for profit reasons and to go. do so without severance or like providing an, um, an opportunity to change jobs within the company or get extra like uh, training to go into new role. Uh, so what happens in that case is that Activision Blizzard was required to speak to A, the existing unions within Activision Blizzard. Uh, uh, whose names are very French, so I'm not going to try to pronounce them. Sure. <laughs> that's, for the, that's for the people who are not in any of those unions. A temporary union is essentially created for the purpose of negotiating this this layoff. Which that sounds super smart. That sounds smart. It it there's a drawback to that, which means, mm, like, you don't lose. Oh, okay, it's in France, so you don't lose your healthcare anyway, as long as it's a private. Um, yeah. But you're sort of stuck in limbo. Like, the company tried to lay you off, so you know this is going to be bad. Yet the law protected you from being laid off immediately, but now you're stuck, sort of stuck in limbo where you know it's not going to be great in the future. But you also, you also don't know how long negotiations between company, union, and the um, federal government agency responsible for those kinds of things is going to take. And they've been going on for a while. I think they're still ongoing. Um... That sort of leaves you in a limbo where you're not fired because they couldn't, but also, <laughs> do you really want to stick around? <laughs> sure. <laughs> but it also gives you the opportunity to like look for something else and not just it be definitely. out on your back. Uh, Blizzard was like, hey, French workers, how about you just go to Ireland where it's cheaper and we can pay you less and do the same job there? <laughs> which, the French, which the French guy was like, eh, no, that, yeah. no that's, not a, that's not a way out. Forget about it. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Well, is there, um, I don't know, like, I don't want to, like I said, I don't want to keep you forever, but is there anything that, like, we covered in our podcast specifically that we haven't brought up here that you wanted to clear the air on or anything that you wanted to, like, talk about before wrapping up? Or push or promote or... Forward our listeners to like a link or a cause or something. We can do all these things. Yeah, yeah. Probably, probably. Like I'm not pressed for time. Man. Let let me think. Yeah. What did you guys talk about? 
Oh yeah. So um, I just think I just want to also like uh, let me talk about about units in games. Um, especially in America, you have an issue with a whole bunch of freelancers aren't really covered by the National Labor Relationship Act. So it's hard to unionize freelancers if you're unionizing within the legal framework that US has provided, which is a relatively shit framework, right? Right. Um, so what you can do and what um, the writer skill, for example, has done is just organize completely out of the legal framework for unionization. Uh, everything you know about, like, okay, you take the vote, goes to the labor board, comes back. You can not do that. You can unionize purely on um, direct action and organized labor. Mm. Like, you can just, like, if you think of, like, all of the, like, teachers strike, the other teachers strike, that was an illegal strike. They still won. Because a strike is still a super effective way to get their demands met. Um, so, one big issue I see in the US is that just a whole bunch of people in tech and games are freelancers and contractors. Like, if you look at any of the, the big four, right, Google, Amazon, it's like half or more than half. Games aren't yet as bad, maybe, but they're getting there. There's more and more freelancers and contractors. So, one big challenge is do you unionize within the legal framework? It gives you some legal protections. Again, legal protections sort of oftentimes only really kick in after the fact. Or do you organize and unionize outside of that framework with less legal protections for it? It's a huge question that is where well, there isn't really one singular hard good answer. If you look at like vice unionizing, um, I'm pretty sure that freelancers working for vice are not covered by those contracts. Yet, of course, a whole bunch of the benefits to, like get passed on to freelancers. Um, which happens a lot that non-unionized workers get some of the benefits unionized workers do because uh, companies don't want to lose that much goodwill. And actually, as a channel, like, it's not that hard for them. But that that's a huge issue in the US, which is why there are so many guilds like SAG-AFTRA. Because if you're a voice-acting freelancer, move from project to project, you work for relatively shorter amounts of time on a singular project. There is so much value in having union-provided healthcare all the way through, no matter what product you're working on. There's yeah, sure. so much value in being unionized as a freelancer in these structures. Um, and also... Oh, yeah. That's how I've earned my living for the last six years, It's freelance, with uh, with no representation. So it's, it's definitely appealing. It's something I should probably start researching. Yeah. And also, it's... A game, game, the game is super fond of games industry exceptionalism. Hey, yeah, yeah, we make so much more money than film and television and music combined right. and all this other stuff. And we like to pretend that all those, not just worlds, but, you know, we're just different than everything else. We're just better. So much more passionate. And I, I talk to, like, people unionizing. We have ex-artists and movies unionizing. Um, theater workers. And it's like, and all kinds of other creative industries. And it's the exact same thing. Really, the same issues, the same expectation of passion, the same systems. And, like, talk about games unions a lot, but what makes games, what's the, what's the hard difference between, like, tech and games? What's the difference between somebody working at Microsoft on 
AWS versus somebody working at Microsoft on games. Why do we draw this line that separates uh, that? Storytelling, right? Versus just just crunching. It's like I don't know. There's a there's a difference between entertainment and a and a product. I think. I mean, it's Unless, still it's still a product, though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but when it's like a when there's when there's a creative element and a creative team to tell a story, uh, it's it's uh, takes on a whole other beast because that's when you that's when the games as art conversation comes in, you know. Games are definitely art, but I can tell you from personal experience, as a programmer on a big AAA game that like six hundred to a thousand people work on, like I'm doing generic, I'm doing programming work, like. Right. I'm not out here creating characters. I implement features as a programmer. Right, right. This happened to do it on games, and I like games, and it's great I do it on games. And it's not like I have no creative freedom, but... So do you feel any different working on a on a product that ends up being creative rather than, say, an app or a database software or something yeah. like that? Yeah, it's definitely yeah. a different feeling, but, like, strategically speaking, from, like, a, a leverage and a labor perspective... Mm-hmm. What is the, okay. what is the benefit of just circling out the game circles of Microsoft and saying just you guys, or just you people, not sure. the other people over there? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I can see that. Yeah, you're both working for Microsoft. You're both you're both programming for Microsoft. You're just on separate projects, different products. Yeah, yeah. different industries. Yeah, I mean that's that's the whole swank of Sec after us. They're like they come from movie and television. They're like. Why should games be different? Why should what I get when I work on movies, on television, on the radio, on creative dance, not apply when I work on games? That's why they were so successful, because they just came in being like, I don't see why I should take less in games than I take anywhere else where I do the same. That's, I mean, I don't have a lot of ammunition for that fight, but I, I can't see an argument, right? Why, yeah, why should they get any different? I guess. Yeah. Sure. Um, so on the, I went through the Game Workers Unite website when I was reaching out to you, and when we were planning the podcast, and I was able to pull some like documentation um, that you guys have, like a zine and some flyers that you can print to use for for projects. Do you guys? Um, how often do you guys create those like zines? How often do you guys put out paperwork to to help supplement people's uh, oh, existing knowledge? Uh, I print those scenes out like a lot like I probably print out like 30 or 40-ish every month or so um, I take them to like games conferences like GDC or PAX um, or Gamescom and stuff like that and, and distribute them by that like I speak a lot in like panels and roundtables um, about unionizing games um, so I print those a lot and hand those out a lot Uh it's pretty expensive to print out zines, honestly. Yeah, uh, they're pretty big. They're pretty. They're full of stuff, full of good stuff. But they also, like, like, they're a pretty heavy, big thing. And if you're handing somebody a zine, you're just bludging them with a dictionary, essentially. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So you need to. You can't just like. It's harder to like dead drop them onto people than like discuss, like, be with them on a round table or panel, and then like after they've gotten um, a bit of that then give them a zine <laughs> so that's why I also had a shit on of flyers and stickers and buttons yeah <clears throat> well um, 
I don't really have any more specific questions. Ben, you got anything else tumbling around in your brain? You muted your mic if you're trying to talk. That's exactly what happened. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I, I let something fall out of my head when you got disconnected, so I was able to ask a few things, so uh, I'm satisfied cool. with what we've talked about. Kevin, thank you for uh, taking the time to let us kind of talk your ear off and ask you all these <laughs> really acute questions about kind of obtuse issues. Hey, no problem. If you give me a mic, I can talk for hours. <laughs> Good thing you can relate. Me. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. We'll uh, make sure you get links and all when all this stuff goes up. Um, hopefully, this spreads some good press towards your uh, towards your efforts. Yeah, and if you were going to tell people where to go if they were interested in this stuff, um, what's their what's the best place they should go? Where should they follow Game Workers Unite? All that stuff. Sure. Uh, GameWorksUnite.com. All right. Uh, <laughs> for our website. Oh, I should know this. At GameWorkers on Twitter. That I definitely do know. Follow us. We, like, if you're just interested in what's going on in the industry, like labor-wise, um, like, you know, if, like, an exclusive of Kotaku comes out, if we, uh, any of our work, or, like, what's going on across the world, we tweet about all of that. Um, Facebook, which I go. made a shitty joke about, and that, who uses Facebook? That's on my mama's on. <laughs> if you're my mom, follow us on Facebook. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, if you're going to, like, any, like, games, con like, if you're a developer, uh, which you know you might be um you live in like the uk france finland uh most of the nordic countries um there's probably a union you can join if you're interested um and also if you're going to like any conference i might just be there or somebody else is there doing a panel of the talk answering questions getting people knowledgeable about their rights their labor rights what unions do um Definitely had stuff like GDC, uh, PAX, Gamescom, a whole bunch of other stuff. I started traveling too much. I'm across, like, if, if it's Gamescom if it's in Europe, I might just be there. Um, it's like one one thing. Uh, oh, yeah, maybe it's the last thing, but I don't really believe in like consumer boycotts as like a, a valuable, like, method of achieving change so if you're out there playing Red Dead Redemption and you read that Rockstar expose it's fine if you have fun playing Red Dead it really is um, ah, that's good. but like um, like we, we, we do like if people enjoy the games you make even if we had a shit time making them like I'm happy for everybody who enjoys whatever I make uh, but inevitably um do speak up about that. Like, um, if, like, it's cool that you're having fun with Rockstar, with a Rockstar game, but do tell them that you're not happy that you're treating the workers like shit. Um, uh, you don't, you don't have to, like, honestly, people ask me so often about, hey, can't you do, like, uh, like an ethically sourced list of games, you know, games that are made <laughs> in great conditions where nobody was harmed. And I'm like, well, that, I can make that list be like five entries. Yeah, they want cage free organic games. Yeah, 
<laughs> like, like, you want clothes that weren't made somewhere in Asia in a shitty conditions. Right. You want any electronics that wa that wasn't made using, like, silicon from Africa. Sorry, you're out of luck. But, yeah. like, you can still speak up about that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, yeah, it's true. fine if you, if you, like, going back to the old thing, but it's fine if you use an iPhone to say on Twitter they're not happy with what Apple is making its products. That's fine. <laughs> Now, I gotta ask if uh, a lot of people think that they're just shouting into the void um, and, and that their voice isn't, uh, isn't heard so that voting with your wallet is the best way to do it so you just don't buy the games that uh, you know have bad practices or something like that. But you're, obviously we don't want to hurt the thousands of employees that made the game and the creatives that made the game. So if we wanted to complain and voice our opinion, what's the best way to do that? I mean, we have a podcast, so we're covered. Yeah. <laughs> what about oh, everybody else? Good. Sure. You know, if you're on Twitter, add the company. Um, okay. We share all of, if you read one of those exposés, um, like Kotaku or something like that, share it in your circle, share it with your friends, so that they start thinking about games and how they're made differently, like the biggest thing with people playing games. But also just say in general is that, going back to, people don't know how games are made, but people expect them People don't expect these problems, mm -hmm. I think. A whole bunch of people don't just expect it. So, um, well, I definitely think it's sort and of also a new voting with you. the last few yeah. years where these, uh, you know, the rights of the people working there are starting to come to the surface. You know, that definitely didn't happen 10 years ago, for sure. De definitely. Yeah. But also, that's just a tip of the iceberg. Um, but sure. yeah, voting with a wallet, I think, like, works, maybe. But, like, <laughs> an organized boycott of Red Dead Redemption 2 will never work, right? No, they already it's it's sold too much in the first 24 hours for any boycott to do any damage. <laughs> yeah. Right. And there are very few developers out here who are like, yeah, I made this game, but fuck, don't play it. They're, they're yeah, please don't. Was, uh, <laughs> right. Steel Division 2, funnily enough, we've heard of Steel Division 2, made by uh, French developer Eugen Systems. Eugen Systems was unlawfully... Paying people below the minimum wage uh, got sued. Tried to fire some people that sued. They were like, yeah, fuck this company because this company is not going to go under whether or not this game does well or not. Just don't buy this game. <laughs> uh, uh, that's not, that's hmm. very rare, that attitude. Sure, sure. yeah. <laughs> right. Don't use that as a model. <laughs> that, that, yeah. Um, but yeah, like, I think people are like, People slightly overestimate how effective boycotts are, and they super underestimate how effective just honestly nagging brands on Twitter is. They listen to all of that stuff. There are so many people to be on social media listening for public sentiment. They're yeah. gonna reply to you. They're right. never gonna reply to you, but they will see it. And right. somebody, there will, some somewhere, there will be somebody showing a graph that says public sentiment down, projected sales unknown, but maybe slightly down. Yeah. Public public sentiment way down. This is bad. Right. This is our brand image is going down. Sure, sure. That's good advice. Yes, that's invaluable. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, we better say our goodbyes before Discord does its thing, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I've got we've got things going on later that I have to get planned out. Um, thanks a lot, Kevin, for for replying and being so willing to like figure out a time that works over the last couple of weeks. I know it was a little hit or miss for a minute so i appreciate it yeah thanks so much very enlightening 
Yeah. This honestly, this is my second podcast today. I did some very bad booking of my time. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we need you again, we'll make sure we schedule more, more uh, adequately. Uh, it's fine. It's all on me. I was like talking to two different podcasts and be like, yeah, Wednesday works. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. And I was like, oh, shit. But it all worked out. It all worked out. So That's it's good. Like, That's good. Well, have a, have a good rest of your, uh, your evening, uh, Kevin. And thanks a lot for, for talking to us for a bit. Thank you for having me on. All right. Cheers. Bye. See you.